Our Lord and our God, we want to thank you for your grace. Lord, the, the compassion and the love of which we have just sung is, is truly uh, noteworthy. Lord, you have loved us, not just in some emotional sense or just in words, but you have loved us in deeds. Deeds carried out by your providential and sovereign hand. Deeds carried out by our Messiah, Jesus Christ. And deeds carried out through the agency of the Holy Spirit who resides within us. Oh, Lord God, we, we just want to praise you and exalt you this morning and ask that you would continue to work in our lives. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth as, as we read your word and as we study your word together. May you work through your spirit to help us understand, Lord, the things which we need to understand, to, re- to uh, remind us of things that we perhaps uh, have not totally forgotten, but have grown um, a little dull in our, in our thinking, uh, sharpen our thinking and make us more like Christ through, um, through your word, uh, not just today, Lord, but uh, beginning today and uh, throughout the week. May you exalt yourself through our lives, collectively and individually. It's the name of Jesus, and for his glory we ask this. Amen. Beloved, uh, we're going to be looking at First um, John chapter 3, beginning at really at the end of verse 10, and opening up the topic of love. Specifically, we're going to be looking at the fact that true believers love one another. For our, our study this morning... I want to remind us of some of the background and occasion for the Holy Spirit's prompting, for the Holy, for the prompting the, the Apostle John to write what he does about love, uh, specifically in, beginning in this passage in 1 John 3, uh, verses 10 to 18. We need to remember that the local church or churches uh, to whom John wrote had recently experienced a, a painful church split. There were those among them whose doctrine and lives did not align with the faithful teaching and Christ-like examples of the apostles. Though we do not have any details of what went on in the church or the churches, it is likely that, that faithful shepherds within the flock began to detect something was amiss with what was being taught with those who ended up leaving. They they began to pick up on the fact that their teachings and their lifestyles did not match or align with that of the apostles. These antichrists, and that's what John calls them, left the fellowship of the local church. And when they did so, they likely left with condemnation for those who remained, for those who did not join with them. This is one of the major reasons that John writes to this group of believers. He writes to provide them comfort, joy, and assurance of genuine salvation. He wrote to comfort those and assure those who had remained faithful to the local church that they were indeed true believers in the Lord and true children of God. And John wrote to assure his readers that those who left, though they claimed also to have a relationship with God, really didn't know him at all. And he wrote to provide his readers with objective tests of faith by which they could conclusively identify a genuine believer. 
We also need to remember that John provided these tests of faith, not, not in, in a, what I would say, a, a modern linear sense. He's not building a, a case much like we would build a case, a, a linear argument, one step building upon another and building upon another, not to really return to the first few steps. John doesn't argue like that at all. He uses a, a somewhat circular manner of argumentation. And some scholars suggest that the best way to visualize how John writes is through a spiral, an ever-expanding spiral, so that when he speaks about a particular test of faith, he'll revisit that later. But he doesn't just merely repeat himself, but he adds something to it, makes it deeper, makes it broader. And so when we approach the, the topic of love that we're going to read in just a moment, we need to realize that this is not the first time that John has spoken about love for one another. He has, he has done that before. Specifically, he has done that in, in John chapter 2, verses 7 to 11. I'd like to read that just, just by way of remembrance uh, for us, since it's been a while since we looked at that. 1 John chapter 2, verses 7, being at verse 7, reading through verse 11. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light, yet hates his brother, is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And remember, that's all said in the context of the truth that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So when John says that someone is in the darkness, he's saying the person has no, absolutely no fellowship with God. They are not a true believer. So that's the way he visualized that test of love then. This morning, we are going to see how John builds upon that truth. The truths that he revealed to us in chapter 2, he's going to build upon those truths, talking about love for one another in this passage that we're looking at. So you'll see some things that are familiar, and you'll see some things that are new. And in this passage, we're going to see that, that John provides us four reasons why believers can conclusively be identified by their love for one another. So you look for those as, as we read through them, and then we'll look at them um, in detail. Let's read 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 to 18, uh, to get our minds set on the, the verses that we're going to study. John says this, by, by this, I'm reading from verse 10, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 
But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. And with these words, John very succinctly communicates to us that that a lack of love for one's brother, one's siblings, is a, is a clear indicator that one does not truly know God. In fact, he says that not only do you not know God, but that you are of the devil. That person is of the devil. Even if they appear outwardly very religious in other areas of their lives. And so we're going to begin studying, uh, looking at this verse by verse, uh, seeing the reasons, the four reasons why true believers can conclusively um, be identified by their love for one another. And we're, we're just going to look at the first two of these today and then continue next week. The first, the first thing we want us to see with this is that consistent, consistent absence of love for the children of God is impossible for someone who has truly come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. The first reason why believers can be conclusively identified by their love for one another is, is that consistent absence of that love um, is, is really impossible for someone who has truly come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's just, it's just unthinkable in John's um, thinking. And, and we see this from, from really the end of verse 10 where he transitions to the topic of love and in verse 11. And we need, I need to point out a few things to help us understand that. First of all, we need to understand the connection between righteousness and love. Why is it that John moves from talking about the practice of righteousness to the practice of loving one another? And that is there's a very close connection. The practice of righteousness is a, is a general term that speaks of our obedience before the, before the Lord. It's a general and broad term to describe a, a holiness or a holy pattern of, of living or a pattern of holy living, to live like our Lord would live. The practice of love is one specific way in which that righteousness is demonstrated or is manifested. In other words, love is a, is a specific demonstration or manifestation of righteousness. The Bible goes further in establishing the connection between righteousness and love in fact, we could say that true righteousness cannot exist without love. And in fact, you cannot practice righteousness without also practicing love. And we see the concrete connection between righteousness and love in the Q&A between the Sadducee lawyer and Jesus, which we find in Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 36, we read this. The Sadducee asked Jesus, he says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So Jesus is surmising the whole law and the prophets in saying all of the righteousness and holiness imbibed by the, by the prescribed actions that God gave his, the nation of Israel, he's saying all of that can be surmised as loving God and loving your neighbor, Love, specifically loving your neighbor as yourself. And the connection between righteousness and love is, is further distilled by the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5, verse 14. He says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
So Paul takes it even just a step further. And how can he do this? Because he knows that the only way that a person can love your neighbor as yourself is by loving God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. There's absolutely no way we can do this on our own. So that's how he can do that. But, but understand the connection between righteousness and, and love for others. Seeing these connections should help us to understand why it is that John transitions from talking about righteousness to talking about love, to the specific application of righteousness, and which John builds and say that true believers are going to love their brothers and sisters in Christ. So that, that's the first thing we need to understand. The second thing we need to understand is, is what kind of love is John talking about here? What kind of love is he talking about? There's lots of different loves, and there's lots of different definitions of love, especially today. But that was true in John's time as well. John is using the Greek verb uh, agapio, or the related noun is more familiar to your ears probably, and that's agape. This is the word related to agape love. Agape is a lofty term for love, which is richly illustrated for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. Agape love motivated the Father to send His Son into the rebellious world to be our Savior. Agape love motivated the Son to willingly die on our behalf. And you could say, by extension, agape love is what motivates the Spirit to come reside within the hearts of all those who believe in Christ. Agape love is is not the love motivated by tender affections or feelings. Agape is not motivated by warm and friendly feelings for one another. As Vine Expository Dictionary explains, Christian love, whether exercised toward the brethren or toward men generally, it is not an impulse from the feelings. It does not always run with the natural inclinations. It does not spend itself only upon those for whom some affinity is discovered, unquote. You see, beloved, even the world loves those who share an affinity with them. An example of this is take your local neighborhood Jeep club. I don't know if there's a Jeep club in Medina or not, but surely there's one in the Cleveland area, right? And they gather together because they love Jeeps, and they drive their Jeeps, and they show their Jeeps off. They get them all cleaned up, and then they go get them dirty. And why do they meet together? Because they all love Jeeps. If you don't love Jeeps, you're not going to meet there. And if you were to go there and you were to hate Jeeps, you would be ostracized, right? You, you, they wouldn't like you at all. But, but the church doesn't, doesn't work that way. The, God saves people from all different works, from all different uh, stages of life. And he saves people and brings them into the local body of Christ, some of whom you don't naturally get along with. You don't naturally share an affinity with. They might come from a totally different background. They might love Michigan while you love Ohio State. There's, there's all of these things. Some of them are superficial, but some of them are much more deeper and profound. The issue is God calls us to love each other, and that kind of love isn't something you can manufacture yourself. That's what he has to do. And, and that type of love is what John is calling us to. And that that kind of agape love is motivated by a desire to do good to another, simply because they have a need. And if you want to summarize, what is agape love? It's the the desire to do good for another when they have a need. To be a blessing to them, even if you don't see a need. Looking for ways to be a blessing for them. 
In short, agape love seeks the welfare and good of others without any consideration of, of any kind of return or anything the person can do for us. The essence of agape love is vividly captured for us in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. Listen as I read that. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's the ultimate example. You see, men will sometimes die for each other. We we read about this in many cases when our soldiers and marines and sailors, when they go to war, right? Or someone will will take the bullet for somebody else. There will be those who dive on the grenade to save their team, right? They do that because they share an affinity with those men and sometimes women. They love them and and because they share that affinity, they're willing to lay down their life. And they're willing to lay down their life for us as fellow Americans in order to keep us free and safe. And yet God demonstrates his love by dying for us, not while we were his friends, while we were on his team, but while we were sinners. In other words, while we were enemies. We were the enemy. We were the terrorists. And Christ died for us. That's the supreme example of uh, agape love. And, and that is the love of which John writes. So understand uh, what type of love John is calling us to. is a very high type of love. The other question we need to ask the test, test is this morning is, who is our brother? So we need to understand who is our brother. Who is John talking about? When, when John says that 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 anyone who does not love his brother is not of God. Who is that brother? What is he talking about? Is he talking about a physical sibling, a brother or sister of our mom and dad? Is this an actual brother or sister? Or could he be using the term brother in a wider sense to refer to a brother in life, another a brother of the human race? Um, this is what the Bible would elsewhere describe as your neighbor. Is that who John is calling us to love? The context, I believe, of 1 John shows us very clearly that the Holy Spirit is using the term brother to refer to, to spiritual siblings, those who we call brothers or sisters in Christ. And, and the context that shows us that is the fact that in verse 11, John says this, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love who? One another. And he's writing to Christians. He is writing to those he's already affirmed that they are followers of God. They are children of God. We see that. We saw that in verse uh, in chapter two. And he was writing to them that they would love one another. So he's not just talking about physical siblings. You could have a physical sibling who is also a spiritual sibling, but he's not just talking about physical siblings. And he's not just talking about the broader use of the term neighbor either. Uh, look at the verse fourteen. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. The brethren. That's a term used to, to speak about the church. To speak about those who are, make up the church. The brethren. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. And in verse 16, 
there's a bit of an exhortation here. He, go, he says, we know love by this. He laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for the brethren. There it is again. So in this context, John is, is using the term brother to refer to a spiritual sibling. That is someone who is a brother or sister in Christ. That is fellow believers. Now, understand that John is not eliminating or diminishing the Bible's command that we love our neighbor. That's commanded in Leviticus 19.18. It's commanded by the Apostle Paul in Romans 13, verses 8 to 10. And it's commanded by him in Galatians chapter 5, verse 14. So there is a broader command that we are to love our neighbor even as ourselves. There is, there is also a sense in which we need to highlight the fact that John is, is not ignoring the fact that we're also called to love our enemies. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, that we are to love our enemies. Indeed, we are to pray for those who persecute us. What John is doing is he's taking something, he's taking love at its, at its, say, its most basic core and applying the test to a believer. When I say the basic core, what I'm talking about is it is sometimes more difficult to love your neighbor who has no affinity, absolutely no affinity, at least within the church, though we might have different affinities, we have one central common affinity, and that is Christ. He has made us one. So sometimes it is more difficult to love your neighbor who, you know, blasts his radio at 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. or whatever and keeps you awake, and you can go through all that. And most of us, most of us um, probably don't have neighbors like that, but it, but it can be like that. But John is not, John is not applying his test to the love of neighbors in general, or even the more difficult thing of loving your neighbor. I mean, loving your enemy. Love, to love your enemy is a very difficult thing that requires great maturity and dependence upon the Lord. So what John is doing is focusing on, on an essential characteristic that's true of all believers, Not just of the mature. This is true of of the immature and the mature. Those who have just come to know Christ and those who have known Christ for a long, long time. He is focusing on the essential characteristic of love for the children of God. You might say that the the love for the children of God is a basic love, a fundamental love, without which one is not a child of God at all. So understanding the type of love, understanding who our brother is, we also need to understand the command or the message. Look at verse 11. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. What John is teaching us is an echo of what Jesus taught his apostles. Listen to Jesus' words, which you find in the Gospel of John. John chapter 13, verse 34. John 13, 34. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, so also, so you also love one another. Understand what Jesus is doing. The Old Testament commandment was to love your neighbor as yourself. That's a high standard to meet, that we're going to need God's help to even do that. But here, the bar is raised. Jesus says, you're to love each other, not as you love yourselves, but even as I have loved you. What is he calling them to? What did Jesus do? What had he done for them already? Well, that evening, uh, and this is the night before he was crucified, he had taken the time and he had humbled himself to wash their feet, their dirty, smelly feet. 
He had taken the task of the lowest servant in the household. Jesus, as the King of Heaven, and as Lord, and as Master, as the great Master Teacher, He should have had His feet washed. He should have been served. But instead, He took on the servant's role and washed their feet. Now, Jesus was not doing that, that we would go wash each other's feet in a literal sense. What Jesus was pointing to is that we need to serve one another, to meet one another's needs, even if that means taking a lowly servant's role. And and so he says, he gives them the command, love one another even as I have loved you. And he reiterates this in John 15, 12. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. John 15, 17, this is, this is I command you, that you love one another. And so Je- Jesus reiterated to his disciples that they were to love one another. In fact, it was that love for one another that, that the world would actually know that they're truly disciples of Jesus Christ. So just as Jesus taught the apostles to love one another, so they carried that message. As they proclaimed the gospel to those on their missionary journeys, they proclaimed that command that Christ gave them, that that the disciples of Jesus, the followers of Jesus, are to love each other even as he loved us. This command to love was embedded into the implications and applications of the gospel, as, God, as the people heard good news and repented of their sins and believed in Christ for salvation, the love of the brethren grew and continued. It was a natural fit. It's one of those commands that's commanded, but it's, it's commanded because God wants it to, um, to excel and to expand, to, to grow. But it's also uh, commanded because it's, it's, it's put into us by the Holy Spirit to love one another. It's, there's just, it's inconceivable that someone could actually love Jesus and not obey him. For in John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The implication is, if you don't keep Jesus' commandments, you don't love him. Jesus isn't talking about some kind of salvation that is earned. That's not what he's saying at all. He's just saying, if you love him, if, you, if your heart is, is truly um, been made new, and you love Christ, you will seek to keep his commandments. And not in a perfect sense, but in the, in the pattern. That what is your, looking at your heart's desire. And Jesus hammered this truth home at several points in his earthly ministry. For example, in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Luke 6, 46, Jesus says this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? The implication is, They're not really, they're just doing this out of words. There are people who called Jesus Lord who had no interest at all in obeying him. And in fact, he wasn't really their Lord. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus says this, Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father uh, who is in heaven will enter. And again, we're not, Jesus wasn't teaching some kind of work salvation. He's just saying that those who are truly in submission to Jesus Christ, will seek to obey him. And so John tells us, he kind of reminds us this in a, in a, in a kernel sense, in verse 11. He says, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning. The early disciples, those who John was writing to at this church, possibly even, even more than one church, but for sure one church, 
When they heard the gospel, and we don't know who when they first heard the gospel, perhaps it was through the Apostle Paul, but for sure through the Apostle John, when they first heard the message of the gospel, they also heard the message of, that we are to love one another. And so John's reminding us, this isn't something new that, that John has invented. This is something which they have heard from the beginning. And there's that command to, to do it. So understand, beloved, that the absence of, a, of agape love for brothers and sisters in Christ is impossible for the person who has been born again as a true believer. It's just simply impossible. Now, when we talk about love, understand that we're not talking about incidents. It's just like we were talking about when we were talking about practice of righteousness. We're not talking about a single failure to love someone in an agape sense, to love a brother or sister in an agape sense. We're not talking about single point failures. We're talking about a pattern. If the pattern of of our life is that that we really don't like other Christians, we really don't want to be around them, we really don't want to hear of their talk of righteousness or their talk of Christ, we don't want to hear about the Bible, we just want to talk about sports and weather, not that those sports and weather are wrong to talk about, but but if we don't want to hear about Christ, about what Christ is doing in their lives, that should be a huge flag to us that we're not truly genuine saved. That's not me saying that. That's the scripture saying that. The absence of agape love for brothers and sisters in Christ is, is impossible for the person who has been born again. True believers understand and embrace the Lord's command to love one another. And keep in mind, beloved, we're not talking about a perfected love. This isn't a perfected love because none of us are perfect. Just like we're not perfected in righteousness, we're not perfected in love. It's an area of sanctification in which we are called to grow in. So John is not referring to perfected love, but to love that is a pattern and practice in our lives. So beloved, ask yourself, is love for the brethren an ongoing pattern of your life? Do you consistently love God's people? And and I have to ask because of the word agape, how is this love manifested? Agape love isn't hidden. It's manifested. Now, I'm not saying that, that this is a love that you go like broadcast to everybody. That's not it at all. It's not a, that, that would err in, into the area of pride. What we're saying is that if you truly love someone, you are going to act on their behalf in some fashion. Right? And that happens in very small ways. Do you know that when you gather together faithfully, you love one another because you encourage each other in the faith and in the scriptures? You know, it's very encouraging when people gather together in the name of Christ. And it's discouraging when people don't show devotion to the gathering, when they forsake the gathering. Not just a single point Sunday, but but in general, when they walk away. But there are many, a multitude of ways. I cannot enumerate all the ways in which the Lord calls us to love one another. Uh, if you want to do a study on that, just, just do, do a, a phrase study on the one another's. And you go through and, and look at all the one another's in Scripture and the New Testament and how we are called to demonstrate love for one another, um, praying for one another. Just, there's, a, there's a whole list of what we call the one another's. Right? That gives you some very practical ways in which you can demonstrate love to one another. And, and some, the person might not see. Like if you're praying for them, that's a way to love them. They may not know that. You can come later and say, hey, I'm praying for you in this area. Um, 
but it, that's not necessarily required. But nonetheless, your, your love is revealed by your actions, is, is the point that I'm making. So how is our love for one another manifested? It says agape love cannot remain concealed. It's, it's not a love that can stay internal to us. And beloved, we need to realize that where shortcomings are exposed in our love for one another, true believers repent of the wrong. We, we confess this, and we seek the Lord's forgiveness, His cleansing from all unrighteousness, and we seek His help to love as He loved, to ask for His strength to walk in love the way that He wants us to walk in love with one another. So why can we confidently say that true believers will love each other? The first reason is that consistent absence of love for the children of God, for the children of God is impossible for someone who has been truly born again. Let's look at the second reason this morning. And this we find in verses 12 and 13. The second reason why we can confidently say that true believers will love each other is that the children of the evil one consistently hate the righteousness of the children of God. Or they consistently hate the children of God. Understand that God pits love and hate against one another in this, in this passage. John, God is speaking through John and, and giving us a picture of love and hatred and that there is no middle space. You know, just when we looked at righteousness, there was practicing righteousness and there was practicing lawlessness. Just as there's no, there was no transition between those. You were either in one realm or you were in the other. So too, uh, that's how John presents this section here. You are either loving each other or you are hating each other. There's no middle ground. There's no neutral ground of just like indifference. Okay? There, there's not. And, and so John is, is teaching us um, this truth that, that those who are children of the evil one, who are not truly believed, hate the children of God. So understand that if you don't love the children of God, you hate the children of God, and that is inconsistent with who God is and with his life, and it is, it is consistent with the life of the evil one. Now let's, let's look at this uh, a bit at what John's saying. So John begins verse 12 by, by saying, kind of flowing from verse 11, it says, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. Now let's understand what, what John's doing. He's using John, sorry, John is using Cain as a negative example, uh, as an example of someone who can be identified as a child of the evil one by his actions or by his lack of love. Cain is offered as a a negative example, an example of someone whose lack of love for his brother reveals him to be of the evil one. So understand, John, there's there's some words that seem to be missing in our English translation, translation. Because if we just read it from verse 11, saying, For this is the message which we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one. In other words, we most naturally want to put in the word not as Cain loved who was of the evil one. We can't put think like that because Cain didn't love his brother. He, he didn't love his brother at all. You know, what Cain did was not something accidental. It wasn't something like a, a moment of fury and then he was really like uh, apologetic and re- full of repentance over what he had done. Not at all. So understand, it, it is, it, his, the logic that John is using here is something like this. We should love one another 
and, and not relating to each other as Cain did his brother. So Cain is an example of a false brother. Cain is pulled out, held out as kind of the archetype of the false believer. Understand that Cain attempted to worship God. He worshiped God in his own way, and God judged him for that. And that's partly fed into Cain's uh, hatred for his brother. Had Cain been a true brother, he would have loved his brother and not murdered his brother. So we also need to understand that that John uses Cain as an example of, of identifying a child of Satan. You know, if we just back up to verse 10, what John is saying, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. So this test of love flows from that. Now Cain is this archetype of one who is of the evil one. And, and John says that verse, very clearly in verse 12. Cain was of the evil one. He, it wasn't just that Cain was evil. He was of the evil one. And, and we could say the same, by extension, we could say the same thing of people who murder today, right? The people who murder today, you know, people say that they're mentally insane, and I, to, I would agree with them to a certain extent. depends how you define mentally insane. But we must understand that these murders are demonically inspired, that they are inspired of the devil himself. It's just like Cain. It's the same type of thing. It's the same principle at work. They are of the evil one. Because the evil one seeks to kill and destroy. That's just what he does. So understand the phrase of the evil one means that Cain was a child of the evil one. Although um, created by God in his mother's womb because of the fall, Cain quickly became a child of the evil one. He never experienced what it was like to be a child of God. And these words of, of like very strong words, I would say, of being of the evil one are really just an echo of what John heard Jesus say to the religious leaders of Jerusalem. If I could uh, read for a moment uh, John chapter 8, you can turn there and listen along as I read or just listen. John chapter 8 is where I'm turning. John chapter 8, beginning at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. For the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, that you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen, With my father, therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. See the connection? If if Abraham was their father, they would follow in the likeness of their father. Jesus uses the same type of logic that John uses in first John. He says, But as it is, you are seeking to kill me. A man has told you the truth which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. And they said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come out on my own initiative, but he sent me. 
Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father the devil. He finally comes out and just says it. You are of your father the devil. They desired to um, murder Jesus. And because of that, Jesus rightly draws the link between their manifestation, their desire to kill him, and Satan's desire as the father of liars, uh, father of murderers, the beginning of those who murder, the one who enter, who caused murder to even be, to enter the world, he ties it back. And, and so John is doing the same thing, following the same kind of logic. And Jesus said that, that Satan was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So when, when Satan uh, initiates um, or inspires a murder, like in the sense of Cain murdering his brother Abel, that, that was demonically inspired. Cain is acting out murder. He's carrying out the murder because he is like his father, the devil, who is here described in 1 John 3.12 as the evil one. And John adds to that, why did, why did Cain murder his brother? To help us understand this. What reason did he slay him? Was it something that he did? Did he steal from him? Did he take from him? Did he lie about him? Not at all. What reason did he slay him? We're told in the end of verse 12. Because his deeds were evil. And his brothers were righteous. It is, in the, it is in the context of, of righteous deeds that evil deeds are exposed. And people who are of the devil hate that. They hate to have their deeds exposed. And when Cain's deeds were exposed, he slew his brother. Look at the word. In some translations, may use murder. He slew his brother. Literally, that means he cut his throat. That's what the word means. It speaks of a violent death. That's why I say that Cain didn't, didn't murder his brother accidentally. This wasn't an accidental death. This was pure fury, premeditated. A violent death he brought upon his brother because he saw his brother's deeds as righteous. It wasn't that he wanted the relationship that his brother had with God. It was that his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Cain's murder of Abel exposed Cain to be a child of the evil one. As, as Expositor's Bible Commentary highlights, it is not that Cain, by murdering his brother, became the child of the devil, but being a child of the devil, his actions were evil and culminated in the murder of his brother, unquote. And John goes on to explain in verse 13 that we need to understand that just as the way that Cain treated his brother, so the world will treat us. The world will hate you. He says, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. The, understand the word if there is not saying, well, if by chance. It's, say, it's more like when it hates you. It, this is assumed. It's going to because it hated Christ. It hated Christ. And, and here, the world, when, when the scriptures use the world in this sense, the world hates you, it's talking about the evil world system that is opposed to God. 
and that comprises uh, unbelievers on this earth. All unbelievers are part of the world that hates believers. John tells us, do not be surprised. I mean, this has been going on since Cain. We see it highlighted again in Jesus' life uh, on, on when he is on earth, how, how uh, unbelievers hated him and sought to murder him. So the pattern is set. And so therefore, the scriptures are saying, do not be surprised. And the way that it's worded, it's like they were already kind of surprised and shocked. And he's saying, stop being surprised by this. The world is going to hate you. And again, this is an echo of what Jesus taught his disciples. I'll just read to you John 15. John 15, verse, uh, being at verse 17. Jesus says, this command... This I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. And then um, verse 23, he who hates me hates my father also. Moving on to verse, chapter 16, verse 1. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering a service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. So he's, he's telling them even there that the world's going to hate them and the world's going to murder. We know that most of the apostles were martyred for their faith. To the best of our knowledge, only the apostle John wasn't, the one who was writing this letter. All the others had faced martyrdom. They had faced that hatred of the world. So John is saying, don't be surprised. Don't let this uh, rock your faith or shake your trusting and uh, your trust in God. Beloved, that hatred of the world is still there today. We see it greatly manifested. Jesus, Jesus himself said that because of the waning of righteousness in our lives, the love of cold will grow... I'm sorry, the... the People's love will grow cold. So as, as the righteousness in this world declines, so will love. Do you, do you see that in our own culture? To the place where even, even those on the, who are on the liberal left side of everything would even propose a movie where they go and kill those who are on the other side? So if you haven't caught on to that, there's a movie that, that was proposed. Supposedly it's now canceled called The Hunt. But, but they, they weren't going after specifically Christians. But understand that, that that is the mentality of the world. The world would love nothing more than to eliminate Christians from the face of the earth because it's Christians who remind the world of how ugly their sin is, who show them that their deeds are unrighteous, are evil. And so, beloved, there's a certain sense in which God leaves us here on earth as a church, to be his ambassadors, to proclaim the good news. And we are called to do that. But we are also left here to be salt and light. 
That means living our lives in a way where our righteousness is seen before others. It's not that we are proclaiming ourselves or pridefully um, presenting ourselves as an example to follow. But if we love Christ and if we hold to his standards, there will be this great divide between how we live and how the world lives, and the world will hate us for that. An example, example of that is the, is the issue of abortion. It's just one simple example. Right? And I understand that there are many people, even, other, even non-Christians who oppose uh, abortions, but it is just one, one way in which the righteousness of our lives, of standing up against murder in the womb, causes the world to hate us eminently. Because it reminds them that their deeds are evil. Now, I must say it in all this. That John is not saying that the person who is guilty of murder can never repent. He's not talking about it. He's not really talking about that at all, but I will mention it. Remember that the Apostle Paul himself was guilty of murder. We don't know if he actually applied his hand uh, to the murder. But he oversaw it and he made sure it was done. So that's why the Apostle Paul says that he is the foremost of all sinners. And that if God can save the Apostle Paul, he can save anybody. And so that there's always room for forgiveness. God is a forgiving God, and he forgives. But the point is that someone who has murdered, if they are truly repentant of that, will not return to that. They will repent of that and walk in a faith and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. So anyone who lives that type of lifestyle is, is definitely not a believer. And we're going to see later, as we get into these other principles, we're going to see that, that even John expands this. This isn't just talking about actual murder. But it could even be just turning someone away. When you have the ability to meet that need, just turning them away is equivalent to Cain's action of murdering his brother. It's revealing that the love of God really isn't in you at all. Beloved, are we living in such a way where our love for Christians is obvious? Do our friends and family see the priority of our love for the brethren and how we live? And are we living our lives in such a way where the world is uncomfortable in our presence? Or have we grown so complacent and so much like the world that there's no salt and light that is applied to people's lives when we're around them. Remember that salt and light or salt in the wound is very painful. And when you're in the dark, a very bright light is hurtful to the eyes. But it's exactly what people need to help them understand the gospel. Beloved, the implications of this passage is vividly highlighted in Expositor's Bible Commentary. And I'll just kind of close with this. The hatred of the world for the community of faith must not surprise the believers. The author does not say that the world always hates believers. It did not always hate Jesus. But whenever the community of faith acts so as to expose the greed, the avarice, the hatred, and the wickedness of the world, it must expect rejection. And if it should go so far as to interfere with its evil practices as Jesus did in the temple, it may expect suffering and brutal death, unquote. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we want to just exalt you this morning and thank you that you have redeemed 
us from the pit of hell, that you have loved us while we were yet enemies of the cross and unlovable. And we just want to just praise you for that. And because of the great love with which you have loved us, Lord, you have called us to love as, as you have loved us, to love each other. And I just ask, Lord God, that you would help us uh, to excel in that, that we would be devoted to one another, and that, w- that the love that we have for one another will abound uh, more and more in real knowledge uh, and in strength and um, the grace that you supply us. But I also pray, Lord, for any that are here this morning who realize that, that the, the true love of the brethren is not in them. Perhaps that doesn't characterize their life and just ask that you would work in their life to help them to seek you uh, in faith, to repent of their uh, sinful and selfish thinking and that you would bring them to salvation even today. Continue to conform us to your image, the image of Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.